0: Welcome into Natchez Glen House Stories. My guest this week—this is sort of an interesting one for me—and I think all of us have had these relationships over the last at least ten years, maybe or so, in the world of social media. That I have followed my guest Bree Arthur for a while and her work and what she's doing, and we know a lot of common folks and have acquaintances across the world of plants. But ironically, this is the first time Brie and I have ever spoken. Brie, I have been following you on Instagram for a long time. We know Dr. A, common People, Dr. Durr, some of the academic folks, people. Give me the quick bio on how you got involved in the
1: plant world. Well, thanks for having me. This is exciting. Yeah, I've been in the plant world for a, a lot of time. This is my 20th year working full-time in the green industry. I studied landscape design at Purdue and uh, landed in North Carolina first as an estate gardener and then worked as production manager at Plant Delights Nursery. And then most recently was the uh, propagator and grower at Camellia Forest Nursery. So I spent a lot of my career growing really cool, nerdy plants for mail-order nurseries. And um, that led to my kind of new, evolved career focusing on consumer horticulture communications. So I get to really give good gardening advice to consumer audiences around the country. I work very closely with extension services and um, give presentations and and gardener-to-gardener advice. and. I like to call myself the cheerleader of gardening in 2020
0: <laughs> No I one of the things I've always and again your background sort of gives it for folks that don't know uh plant delights in North Carolina Tony A event there uh incredible plant collection credible plants person and I've got I've got to think just from that being one of your early jobs that you and I probably see plants in a very similar way. That the world of them is so infinite, but so many times, people on like the consumer side, like the folks you're communicating to, don't know that. Right? We we haven't always shown them the most cool and interesting things always in the plant. It's world.
1: exactly true. It's something I'm often kind of frustrated by in that people think the world revolves around knockout roses, and gosh, there's so much more out there to discover. Do you think
0: this is one of the questions I get all the time and how do you feel we can maybe bridge this? So these are the questions I will occasionally get. What do you think about hydrangea? What do you think about iris? And from my mind, I go, well, first off, let's categorize what species because that in itself huge difference. And then on top of that, cultivated variety. Then, okay, now we got another thing to go through. How do you think we communicate that better moving forward to gardeners, no matter where they're at in that, that, you know, I think we've done to plants a little bit, what we wouldn't want done to us. We wouldn't want to be talked about in a generalized way. We'd want to be talked about as the unique snowflake unicorn that we are, (laughs) but with plants, we're sort of throwing them all into this generalized world of hydrangea or iris or like you said, Rose, how do you think we we start to break that out better for people?
1: Well you know, and that's a great question. It's something we should all ponder more often
2: because
1: um, I watch people's faces as I start to make taxonomic discussions normal and. You know, distinguishing between a genus, say genus, hydrangea, and then all of the species within that range, and then all of the varietal selection of all the different species, you can see where people start to lose track and they get confused. And so you, you understand in one regard why people want to lump things all together and oversimplify it. But then it's such a disservice because once you start to really dive into it, you have this gained appreciation for the never ending knowledge base that, that you'll be seeking for the rest of your life. And, you know, so I know in my presentations, I really try to dive in, explain, you know, what the taxonomy is referring to and why the botanical labs is meaningful and how it can help you in better understanding how to grow the plant or where the plant is from or, you know, one of the particular habits that the plant might possess so that they're less likely to roll their eyes and tune me out, you know, to to try to show that these distinctions are there for a reason and it will make you a better gardener in the long run if you pay a little attention up front. But the industry and, and especially box store market has made that, even more difficult to raise the bar on our sophistication level of how we discuss plants because every time I walk into a garden center, I see less informative information, you know, less informative information, less informative signage uh, to guide the customers into making a better decision. You know, we know as plant nerds, there's a big difference between hydrangea macrophylla or hydrangea paniculata or arborescence or you know any number of the different species, and we're doing that that genus a big disservice by lumping them all into you know is it blue or pink because that's what the end consumer associates with hydrangea.
0: Yeah, and I, I feel like we have hopefully if and sometimes before we started recording, you and I were actually speaking on this subject that a lot of the people in the plant world have not exactly been on the cusp of technology and social media and things of that nature, right? True. <laughs> and we we have entered into a period where some of the content being consumed by people, you know, the phrase deep dive is used a lot to explain it now, that people will go down and deep dive subjects. In fact, one of our, our previous guests, um, Joey from Crime Pays Botany Doesn't, is this really fascinating example of that. He uses really like brash language and he's got a real thick, heavy Chicago accent, but he's an amateur botanist and he doesn't shy away at all. It's, it's the most botany heavy content I've ever seen (laughs) from anyone. And you know, he's got over 150,000 subscribers on YouTube. Um, I think we're at a place where there is an appetite for an audience To know these differences, like you said, macrophylla and paniculata and arborescence, and here's the differences. And, you know, that in itself, if people could learn just very basic elements of that, would solve one of the greatest mysteries of the gardening world over the last 50 years of how to prune hydrangeas. Because (laughs) the the two of them break into this, they tell you how to prune hydrangeas when you know the difference. Do do you see that in the communicating that you're doing do you, do you see any of that difference happening that there is maybe a a generation that's a, a couple of decades younger than some of the previous guard that does want that kind of information that is really wanting to deep dive into some of
1: the topics you know i i see it to a degree that you know i'm still primarily talking to Older audiences. And that's a big concern that I know the extension talks about with great regularity. And, like, how do they get a new generation to join Master Gardeners? And, you know, how do we engage people in our communities in a meaningful way? And is it going to all be digital? Because I see more younger people interacting on digital platforms than I do physically showing up to a symposium. And, I personally love the symposium method. I learned so much from those days spent with knowledgeable speakers who are sharing their passion. And, you know, I hope they don't disappear. I hope that platform doesn't disappear, but maybe what we need to be focusing on is getting those live in-person events recorded so that a greater audience could access the information. Because, it's different than, than say, a three-minute YouTube video that doesn't really get into, it doesn't provide a deep dive. You know, you're going link to link to link to link and all of a sudden you've, you know, lost half of your day versus getting a 45-minute, uh, you know, well-founded presentation that will give you all of the information from a, a reputable source. And I think that's a really good thing that we should all be, brainstorming on and maybe we need to have like a TEDx for horticulture, you know? (laughs) For sure. Well,
0: no, it's been one of, and I've shared this frequently on social media because I'm in the full transparency business, that one of my frustrations in hosting and producing the podcast sometimes has been just guest wrangling uh, to try to get some of the folks to tell the stories in these very Long form conversational tones where we really get into it, where we can really talk about it. Uh, one of the the topics of the moment for me, clearly, because we're in the season of it as we record this, has been hellebores, and the breeding on hellebores has been fascinating over the last twenty years. To see helleborus orientalis go from this nodding head to some of the breeding work that's been done that now gives us these upright head. And the flowers completely almost transformed itself in that breeding effort. But getting some of those folks on the podcast is like pulling teeth occasionally. And it's not a format they're real comfortable with. They're used to more traditional media where it was Q&A maybe for a magazine or something like that. And I think you're right. Trying to present the content in a format and media that's just more in tune with the moment is like universally important to trying to move it forward. You mentioned the generational gap that there might be. Do you in any way see that maybe the people, and this is a real delicate question for, for you, Bree. so I'm going to, I'm going to tread on it here. (laughs) That one of the things I noticed early on about the Hort world was if you knew some of the code language, if you dropped a botanical here or there, if you knew some nomenclature, you were good. You were in the club. But if you didn't necessarily at the beginning, it maybe wasn't that way. Did you, did you ever pick oh, up definitely. on that? Do you think that was a it mistake? It felt
1: like there was like a, um, an invisible gate that would open when you would go to a nursery and speak the right language. And then they would respect you <laughs> regardless that you didn't have decades of experience
0: behind you. It's its absolutely accurate. Yeah. Do you feel as if then you know, I think we have these two parallel things happening in the nursery industry. We had the 2008-9 the housing crisis and then right along there is really the advent of social media. The two of them almost correspond and I don't know if The nursery world was so rocked by the housing crisis period that it didn't really step to social media in maybe the way it should have in a real like authentic kind of way. Do you feel that had something to do with it? Because I know both of us were involved with it at that point that it almost feels to me like it still hasn't gotten its footing since that housing crisis, on varying subjects,
1: I, I fully agree with that. Uh, it's really interesting that you make that connection. It was, it was just in Massachusetts yesterday, and I gave a uh, morning breakfast talk on you know, connecting connecting to consumers through social platforms. And in doing so, I you know kind of described some of what I what I see as generation differences and. I'm of course giving this presentation from my perspective, and you know I consider myself to be in the subprime uh, generation. I bought a house before the economy collapsed, and then it uh, was completely upside down as soon as the you know the Dow went down, and it took years to be able to recover from that. And when older people make the comments about millennials not growing up fast enough, and you know, not investing and da da da. I think, well, thank goodness this generation wasn't set up to fail like mine was. Where, you know, we bought a house, we were able to buy houses without having any money down and not really even having secure jobs. And, and, you know, that, that really changed the way we could function is in our early, early to mid, you know, 20s and 30s. And I'm glad to see that the millennial generation didn't have that as an option so that they were able to navigate their young adulthood in a hopefully more economically responsible way. And I think it's that, that our industry is so closely tied to the housing industry that once this generation gap finally really catches up, because I have lots of millennial friends who are now investing in houses, they're doing it 10 years later than I did. So... Not only did we have a housing crisis, but then we had a generation delayed in buying houses for another decade. And I think that is going to start changing now. And I, I hope, I hope that the ethic of this generation is going to shake out to making some big changes in the way our landscapes are designed and managed. Because I think we have a whole lot more that we could be offering. Than just green meatballs and spraying Roundup and shearing shrubs, our landscapes can offer so much more for this environment that we live in, and for pollinators and for food production. And I hope that this will be the generation that makes that bar raise. I'm holding my breath for it because <laughs> I want to see these changes happen. No,
0: it's a it's a really strong point to to get into it with people that there has been a massive change culturally uh, in both home buying, in uh, when people are having children. There's been a lot. There has been later age for both of those things. And it it brings me to the topic that I do hear a lot of people, uh, I guess, banking on to some degree. And I know you are super close with this topic of people growing their own food at home and foodscapes and trying to create uh, edibles throughout either the garden or dedicated kitchen or vegetable gardens. We have seen an increase in it. But I think my my broader question to you is, is it actually being a gateway to get people to garden? Are people sticking with it? when they try it when they when they first start going through that edible portion of it do you see them continuing it as they move forward
1: well you know i probably have a skewed perspective because the people who try it and then quit aren't generally keeping in touch with me <laughs> but overwhelmingly in the last 5 years since i've been traveling the country and writing books and you know giving people creative ideas on how to Grow vegetables more logically, I think is really what my what my end game is. The information I share with people is how to make it less work. We traditionally grow vegetables in a really challenging way. We pick the hardest vegetables, the highest maintenance. Um, you do it during the hottest season and then you lose interest very quickly. So the advice that I share is really trying to get people to think more critically about maybe growing five things that they eat a lot of and grow those in a meaningful way that changes their habits at the grocery store, but not giving them the idea that they're going to magically be able to cultivate everything they consume, because that's pretty unrealistic. Um, So I've had an incredible amount of feedback from people year after year who, you know, are, are so excited when they harvest their garlic, because garlic is easy to grow. It doesn't need fertilizer. It's it's a cool crop, you don't have to be irrigated. It can grow anywhere that's sunny. Doesn't need to be distinguished in a vegetable garden. It helps, you know, deter browsing mammals, which is a gigantic problem in residential landscapes. And so I, I try to offer these ways of growing vegetables in a creative approach that solves some problems and that are very practical for your use in the kitchen. And so from that perspective, I have gotten a lot of positive feedback. And it's been really cool to see how people take my instructions, very literally, they, they do it, and then the next season, they're sharing pictures of their neighbors doing what they did. And so I feel confident in saying that this is becoming a successful grassroots movement. Um, I would love to see this be something that was just how all landscapes were done, but for me, this is a, a connection, individual to individual, gaining their their confidence and their ability to grow a crop that they eat, that they 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 don't waste it. It's that that doesn't require them to not be able to go on vacation to be able to cultivate in their landscape, and then as they develop their abilities to to grow food they can experiment with harder things
0: um do you feel that one of the concerns that i've had is i see a lot of people and i, and I know from your work you don't do this that they almost want to present gardening and growing things with like a recipe attached uh, to it do you step one through seven And if you do steps one through seven, it's all good. And then soil shows up and nature shows up and the quality of the plant you started with or the quality of the seed you started with all show up, right? All the great variables of gardening show up. That the people I'm concerned with are the folks that enter it through those doors. That here's a prepackaged recipe of how you do things, steps one through seven, and then they fail, and they blame themselves. Do you see some of that
1: as well? Um, Yeah, I do. I am very conscious to try and never present information that way because, you know, it's just false advertising. Um, I guess that's where being a gardener, and I I mean, my life revolves around gardening. I'm able to give people real, genuine advice from my experience, and my experience isn't that gardening is like following a recipe ever, and no two years will ever be the same, so don't set your expectations that your yields will be Similar or that, you know, one year you'll be really successful with tomatoes and the next year you'll have really blight and you won't get a single fruit. You know, I want to tell people the truth. I want them to, to be a part of this journey that sometimes you feel really good about yourself. Sometimes you feel like a failure because that's real. That's, that's just reality. That's just being alive every day. And it's something we shouldn't deny ourselves because I frankly learn a whole lot more from my failures and my successes because I don't think as critically about my successes. And so I really try to make well, a point of sharing more of what not to do based off of my own my own failures than anything else.
0: <laughs> you know, and I, I that's one of the components of the conversation that the the nuance of gardening and plants is where the magic's at. So If we don't get people to embrace that, if we don't get them to embrace the differences between this year and last year and how this variety or this species is different and how it works, that we're not doing a good job. Like, that's just the bottom line. Like, we're, we're keeping the best thing from you, which is not the recipe thing and the cookie cutter approach to it, because that's how we ended up with modern landscapes in the first <laughs> place. Low maintenance and easy and just do this and set it and forget it. And here's, you know, a few more bucks to throw in the ground that I feel like that's been one of the shortcomings on the vegetable side of it, on the edible side of it for gardening. Is there that? feed thing is is that part of it do you think that the magic for many of the people there is you get to eat it you know it's a very uh you know primal for lack of a better word maybe experience for people that maybe does get them excited about it maybe more so than ornamentals oh
1: absolutely i mean there's no there is no denying the satisfaction that frankly anyone of any experience level gets when you know, you go out to your, your garden and you gather something and you get to eat it right then. There, there's just a... It, and it's, like it's not even about being self-sufficient. It's just about feeling like, oh, I'm contributing something to my diet that, that's meaningful. And I think it's a feeling that everybody deserves to have, regardless of how much land you possess or if you live in an apartment or a condo or anything. You know, the the advantage that vegetables have over ornamentals is that they're inexpensive and they're generally annual. So you don't have 10 years to wait, you know, to harvest that broccoli. You might only have three months devoted to being able to grow that plant to harvest from. I came from this totally backwards. You know, I, I come from traditional horticulture ornamentals were absolutely my driving force for the majority of my career. And so it was a huge shock to me when I realized that my practice as a home gardener, where I was incorporating vegetables in my landscape, simply because I didn't have the luxury of space to have a a separate vegetable garden. You know, I live in a suburban development. And I also had these crazy HOA rules that dictated what I was allowed to plant where, which were totally inappropriate, not created by a horticulture professional. Um and I, I realized that I had to figure out a way around this because if me as a professional are, are am feeling stifled by what I'm allowed to do in my neighborhood, everybody else in my neighborhood is that much more intimidated because they don't even have knowledge on their side, you know. And
0: that's a great point that's a great point you're making and it's interesting because in the the retrospect of, of gardening so many of the really especially in Europe the historic gardens did incorporate the two rather well there was this blending of edible and ornamental that it's almost like we in the especially in the United States with suburban development like you're talking and HOAs that suddenly that was gone like it was almost like a forgotten thing that you know well yeah usually these two things existed in in a a garden setting it wasn't unusual to see that what has been the experience with folks like yourself like what you're explaining that when people do start to interplant some of these edibles into their gardens. Is it sort of a, a revelation kind of moment for them where like sometimes some of these plants are actually very attractive and you can eat
1: them? Yes. I mean, it's the funniest thing. And I, I chuckle every time I think about the the title of my first book, The Foodscape Revolution, because it shouldn't be revolutionary that you can grow some food for yourself at all. But somehow we have gotten to a place in our society where this really novel idea is a revolution. <laughs> you know what the funniest thing I see when I when I talk to audiences, and I, I ask them, you know, the simple things like, well, what side of your house has the most sun? And often it's the front yard, right? And HOAs are a classic for saying no vegetables in the front yard. And so when I start to go over the ideas of like don't segregate your vegetables in an isolated spot because you're just creating a monoculture. Our vegetables are fundamentally not biologically diverse. So you should take better advantage of the diversity that your ornamental landscape offers. That's like number one solution, right? Then start just evaluating the open square footage that you're devoting to mulch. Because we are currently in a love affair with ground-up trees. You start looking around at the American landscape, it's maybe 50% tree shrub, maybe perennials, 50% open space with mulch that is having to be, you know, weeded. It's having to be hit with herbicide to be able to manage it. Why not use that open mulch space to cultivate an annual food crop that you like to eat? That is fundamentally more ornamental than ground-up tree bits. You know, I mean, this does not take a lot of creative thinking to be like, okay, do I want to spend all my money on mulch and roundup? Or do I want to spend, you know, five dollars on a collection of seeds, scatter it in this open space, and then start eating from it? It's a really easy solution. It actually makes your landscape significantly less work and you get so much more from it. And that has been the the thing that audiences just have these light bulb moments when they think, oh, I like eating salad and I'm a little bit afraid to buy it from the store because of all the recalls. I could just scatter lettuce seed in my open malt space and grow salad there. <laughs> I don't know why we've been conditioned to think that we can't do that, but that's my life's goal is to break down that barrier.
0: When, when P. Allen Smith was on the podcast, he made the comment that if People were were gardening, we'd see it. That if as you drove around neighborhoods, you wouldn't see that mulch space like you mentioned. Do you you feel like the low maintenance thing? And it's sort of interesting, because I'm still waiting for the first person, Brie, by the way, who's the guest on the podcast. Everybody who I have on, you know, really well respected people like yourself, academic folks, like so many of us, we all know that low maintenance was a bad idea when plants were being sold to consumers and the general public as low maintenance we all understand that but yet it happened it it happened like we're sort of here now why do you think it happened? Like, who is this person, Brie? I guess that's my long-winded way of asking it. Like, who is the person? Who do we hold responsible? And when do we put them on trial? Because who's the person that said it? Like, who's the person who started somewhere clearly there was someone who was like, you know, the way to tell people to buy this is just tell them it's low maintenance. I
1: don't know who when, it was, when and where? I would really like to hold them accountable. <laughs> What's preceded yes. is basically 30 years of utter confusion and lots of lies. You know, and I always just say, especially when I speak to the industry, like, just stop lying to the customer. Let's stop putting a size of 4x4 on a shrub that clearly is going to be 12 by 12 if you don't prune it. You know, let's stop setting false expectations. Because that's where the problem is. If people aren't disappointed in the end result, then disappointment doesn't exist, right? But when you lie to them and make them think that they're going to buy this and never have to think about it again, and then when it dies or it grows taller than their windows or, you know, reverts like I'm thinking of the privets, and, you know, they revert and start setting seed and become terribly invasive. Well, if we had set their expectations appropriately from the beginning, they would be better consumers, they would be better maintainers of our product line. And I don't know why we decided that our consumers weren't intelligent enough to be able to understand the nuts and bolts of plants, but I don't think that's true at all. Uh, and I actually think the I, I, new generation is even more curious than generations prior, so we really shouldn't insult their intelligence by thinking they can't handle the real information.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. I'm going to tell a story to you that I have not shared on the podcast yet. When I was running sales and operations for the nursery in Oregon, we had a customer at a pretty sizable garden center in the Maryland area. And we primarily grew really unique conifers and maples. So I went in there and they had ordered some from us in the past. And I looked over their last order, and one of the things I I didn't see were some Japanese white pines, as an example. So I started talking to him about a Japanese white pine called Bergmanai, and it's this really awesome, very compact, really beautiful blue-needled pine. And I'm telling him all these attributes, et cetera, et cetera. And then he said to me, he goes, yeah, I got to stop you right there. I got to stop you. Yeah, I don't care. And I I was a little bit like, whoa, okay. Okay, let's see where this goes, Brie. Let's see where this goes. And he said to me, yeah, that's all great. But let me tell you, I got a guy over in North Carolina. I buy Eastern White Pines from him, four to five footers. I pay him 15 bucks a piece wholesale. He ships them here to me for about another four or five a piece. So they're like 20 bucks and I sell them for like $89. People never know the difference between what you're saying and that. Oh, and I, I feel sometimes in retrospect, like how much of that's been happening? How much of that, the low maintenance talk, the all plants are the same kind of thing. And I I wonder as you travel and talk to people in the industry, that point of contact, and again, this is a delicate question for you, Bray, the point of sale for plants. Has just not always been a place to nurture education. And I hope that's something that everybody in the the industry of plants can maybe come to, maybe sometimes a reluctant agreement on, and know that that's really important. And now that point of purchase might be online. But wherever that point of purchase exists, we got to really know that maybe that's where we were. And those are the people that were telling those kind of things to people.
1: Yeah, I love this. I love these, this discussion and this thought process because I think this, when we get the solution to this, we will be able to break down the barriers that we haven't been able to fully identify. I have a good friend who is a, a talented landscape architect and botanical illustrator, Preston Montague. And one of the things that is really unique about the service that he provides to his residential clients is the level of information that he gives them so that they are an active part of the design process. They understand why a native plant is necessary for, you know, certain parts of their landscape and, you know, what, what area would be ideal for growing a handful of food crops that are very practical for their lifestyle. And he includes them in, in a way that engages them. And not only do they feel like they're helping make the decisions for the design, but they trust him implicitly as a result of his giving, giving his knowledge to them. You know, it's not just a CAD drawing. It's not, it's, it's not just a, a 45 minutes of my life and I forget about your landscape experience. And I think that that, Strategy is a really important way to connect with consumers of any age so that they feel more confident in what they're spending their money on. You know, I think that's totally fair that we evaluate what does a person prioritize and what what are they actually investing when they're spending money on plants or on gardening or soil or whatever element it is that engages them in the way that we feel engaged. And what, what advantages do we have over the general public? And it's our knowledge and experience. And for me, it was growing up gardening. You know, I I spend a lot of my time now teaching 8-year-olds how to garden because I feel confident that if they learn at age 8, they will be better consumers at age 38. But we didn't give well, that experience was... to my generation or, or millennials under me. I mean, I was fortunate because I grew up at 4 eight. But
0: not everybody had that experience with growing plants. Well, and there's been, it's one of the things I have, I'll be self-deprecating and say ranted on recently, Bray, that one of the conversation topics that I really think has hurt the world of plants is we start the conversation talking about the death of a plant. How hard is this to take care of, which is AKA, how hard is it to kill? can i kill right. it? we start the conversation about the end of the journey of the plant and not what makes it so special like what you're saying with preston's work trying to get people invested in the process what makes this so unique why did someone in the case of maybe uh, a cultivated variety plant Why was that plant so special? What's the story in the case of a native plant? Why is that important that that's a native plant? There's a pollinator. There's a symbiotic relationship in the ecology of the area for that. There's so much storytelling potential to plants that make it special for people, for consumers. But we came back to that low maintenance thing. That was the sales pitch, right it felt it felt very used car like you know uh, how many miles does it have? Oh, it doesn't matter it's got another hundred thousand more get out the door And I, I think we're we're at a time where we're clearly before we started recording, you know I, I shared with you some of my thoughts on where the industry economically may be at at the moment. and when you talk to people within the industry, are they more receptive maybe now to some newer ideas than maybe say when you began in the horticultural world 20 years ago?
1: Well, you know, I don't know that I can even answer that because 20 years ago, I wasn't suggesting change. Um, and to be perfectly honest, I never thought that talking about food was something that was disruptive to the industry. Although it's, certainly have that feedback from people in this world. And uh, I don't generally consider myself to be a disruptor. But if if vegetables are a gateway, getting more people to value plants, I don't know why anybody would deny that opportunity. And I'm proud to, to be a vegetable grower. And I acknowledge that I eat food as often as I as I'm privileged to. And I want to actually be a part of my own food chain. And I find audiences across the country also want to have that connection. And what's cool that I see when, when they start thinking a little bit more critically about how can they steward this plot of land, no matter how small it is, you know, it, it can be an ace of an acre in a suburban development. It still matters. It's still, you, you can still, you know, take some responsibility for not only how it looks, but how it functions and what it provides. And as soon as people start introducing food to the mix, they start thinking more critically about their land management habits. How much pesticide are they putting out? How much herbicide are they using? What synthetic chemistries are they applying? that aren't really necessary. It's just been their habit. Because just right along with low maintenance comes the discussion of, you know, it's time to, to put out your your. Pre-emergent herbicide on your lawn to keep it, you know, a perfect green monoculture. Even though we all know that's not necessary, <laughs> you know, like if it's green, you can mow it. It doesn't have to just be fescue. Um, but that's been for me in the last five years what really keeps me motivated is seeing people realize I don't have to do the status quo. I can do something that's more beneficial to the environment in which I live, which may give me, you know, the opportunity to have a couple of meals and feel like I've actually done something with this land that I'm managing. And and it it does feel like it's a a bigger contribution. You know, I want to believe that every plant that is put into the ground makes the world a better place. However, I know that not every plant that's put into our landscapes is actually, is is not actually a positive contribution. I mean, this industry is notorious for having put out some very invasive plants that we still don't take full responsibility for. The fact that Bradford pears are still in the marketplace and being sold is an atrocity. How have we not woken up Hmm. to that?
0: Well, and I I think the, the duality for me has always been that not only are they still sold, But it's not like our cupboards were bare, Brie. It's not like we didn't have other things, right? It's not like we don't have what's a near infinite universe of plants to offer that were better in every way better. They're, They're, you know, go through, you know, make a checklist of better, and we would find easily other things that were better. How do you think it balances that? That some of what has been out there where things and, and starting in the early part of your career more in you know a specialty nursery like plant plant delights that that process because i i don't know if you would feel the same and i'll dual question this for you that sadly to my eyes many of the plants that you know people like tony probably people like yourself like myself have really loved still haven't gotten out there to the market in the way maybe you would hope they would have and replaced things, you know, just as the easy to pick on thing like a Bradford pear?
1: I don't know. Honestly, I I don't know. And I do get very frustrated by this because coming from the production side of plants, Many of the things that would be better alternatives aren't more difficult to produce. So, growers don't get to use that as their reason for not, you know, eliminating pears from their inventories and replacing it with, you know, say, some stewardias and some different syrax and getting some cernus into the mix and, you know, adding more diversity to the plant palette. Um this is a discussion that we frequently have at our International Plant Propagator Society meetings and some of the commodity growers are just, you know, really dedicated to the handful of things that they've always grown. And maybe in part their hesitation comes from fear of not totally understanding how to grow out a diversity of plant material. My main goal as a professional is to make consumers start asking for more so the industry has no choice but to fulfill that need. Because I don't think change is going to come from the industry not knowing whether people will respond to a change in in what's being offered. But when people start asking for something different, then change will actually start to happen. And so that's people talking to consumers as often as I can and you know, hopefully I can figure out how to beef up my digital platforms because that was the most meaningful way to be able to connect to people now. But this change will only happen when people start going to garden centers and showing up at box stores and asking for something different. And until that day very it's the same compl- thing.
0: Complicated question for you, part two. Before uh, recording this uh, story with you, I was talking to my friend Scott, who's in the cut flower world. That I, I go back and forth between with my hort hat and my my cut flower hat now, Bree, which is fun. But he and I were talking about a sort of a similar subject in a completely different lane. That who dictates what? Is it the in this case the floral designer who dictates what flowers people want? Is it the consumer? who dictates what flower the floral designer uses. And then, of course, at the beginning of all of that supply chain, you've got the growers in that world too. Do you get frustrated that maybe sometimes the best voices in the world, I'm not talking about Dr. Durr, but I might be talking about Dr. Durr, that they have been vocal within our own walls. Vocal within our own walls, but maybe we haven't reached outside of them as much as we should, like what you're mentioning that we need to start doing.
1: Well, yes. And to Dr. Durr's credit, you know, I'm going to be speaking, I'm super intimidated, by the way, because I have an event on Saturday, and it's Dr. Armitage, Dr. Durr, and me. <laughs> and I'm just so starstruck with both of them that I don't even know if I'll get through my program. But to his credit, he really has done a lot to talk the consumers, in addition to the influence that he's had on the industry. Um, and I just always look at this as like a big, slow-moving machine. And my dream is that as millennials start making bigger purchases that influence our industry, that's going to be the time when things start to change more rapidly. Is that's the biggest age group that has a different ethics than any generation prior. So it's really hard to judge, you know, what change could have been when, you know, people my age, we didn't grow up in a time where we thought about planting natives. That wasn't, that wasn't even a topic of discussion. I'm so proud of the industry for normalizing that now and that that is something that people are aware of regardless of how knowledgeable they are on a specific plant. People recognize that keyword native. They recognize that keyword edible. And I think it's our job in the industry to you know, keep extending this information and the value that our product services provide. And that's where we can all do a better job, collectively and independently. But I think I know, like, I didn't have any technical training. I feel like I barely understand how to operate my computer. So it's very intimidating to start a YouTube channel when you don't know how to edit a video. I'm saying this from literal personal experience. You know, I feel Mm. paralyzed in the process of trying to figure out how I add music and how I balance sound. These are things I was not trained in at all. It's
0: Well, and it's it's one of the real challenges of the moment too, and to P. Allen's credit, he and I had this conversation pretty in-depthly, and then Joe Lample, another mutual friend of ours, also had this conversation as well. That part of the concern now is that some of the people that did know how to do all of those things, Brie, are the voices people are listening to. And many of them may not I'm being kind again actually have the credibility in what they're saying. Well,
1: that's true. Yes. I see that, and, especially and, through some YouTube channels that have, you know, a million subscribers and yet the information that's being expressed is really inaccurate.
0: And that's a, that's sort of where we find ourselves out now is there's these platforms, but now the platforms are, are crowded in many categories. And now how do you cut through the noise that exists with good information and and from people like yourself and people that actually have both technical experience, personal, all of the things that it really takes, you know, to use one of Dr. A's commentaries, the juice, as he would say, (laughs) to talk on these type subjects, that, you know, now that's a new challenge. Another question on this type topic that I do find encouraging. And I wanted to see if you've seen maybe some of the same, that there are more growers who were historically on the wholesale side of it that are at least intrigued or are interested in selling directly to end gardeners and customers. Do you see that at all, too? I do,
1: yes. And I think that's going to increase, particularly as they develop better abilities to ship plants. You know, coming from mail order, the the hardest part of mail order nursery is making it so the plants aren't dead when they show up on someone's doorstep. And that is that remains a challenge. And, you know, I think five or six years ago, the industry was freaking out over Amazon selling plants. And really all that was was just Amazon using industry resources and, you know, having the exposure of Amazon to be able to make it so that... That customer didn't have to find that individual grower and that for that particular plant. It just made it more accessible. Um, I'm hopeful that that's going to keep happening. I worry that it's at the expense of the independent garden center or even the local markets. And I, I, I personally value local farmers markets almost. Not more than, they're very different from the garden center, but I like to support the growers who are selling there on a Saturday morning and I can talk to them person to person and they can, you know, tell me, you know, how they grew this and where it would be best cited and that's valuable information. I worry a bit that by doing everything digitally, we are again, you know, cutting that stream of meaningful communication. But I'm sure
0: there's some happy medium somewhere, right? Well, and I, I agree with you. I I would say this, that sadly, not every market has a good garden set. Right. That that's been one of the real challenges. You know, the, the example I mentioned with the, the Pinus Parva Flora commentary, that for a lot of people, their exposure to plants was limited both through experience at that garden center, but also product. If the product was all heavy handed commodity, that's all you saw. Um, Again, one of the great disappointments for myself coming at it from a very unique perspective into the world of nursery and horticulture was when I started meeting with independent garden centers, despite all those really interesting things we were growing, you know, the the first commentary were, you know, how much are Thuja placatas? That was really it. But, you know, regardless of what else I was excited about, it came down to, you know, what were these bread and butter commodity crops going to cost me this year? And that is a challenge. But I agree with you. There, there's got to be more of an outreach there. On that topic, because I know you do speak to so many groups, where do you see the role of like botanical gardens? And now we do have another nice thing maybe the world of plants can lean into with people like myself doing really interesting, cool plant things. We have people in the edible, small-scale ag world in having... Maybe that be the transition those become the epicenters for people to learn and have those one on one in person experiences like you're talking about
1: i think the I think the the future is really bright for botanic gardens that think outside of the box um, that do you know different educational outreach different different platforms of it. Um, I could say like from from my experience, especially with the grain book that I'm very passionate about, I'm I'm teaming up with breweries because that's where young people are hanging out. And I want to talk to young people in a place where they want to be and just educate them about, well, what's actually in beer? And barley is in beer. It's it's a really important ingredient. And hey, you know, you can grow barley and it's really pretty. (laughs) And I think
0: that is a that's a perfect transition because I wanted to talk to you about this very subject cuz you've whenever I see you post this on social media I'm always fascinated about it and I, I'm like good for you that's incredible walk me through this right you you somehow along the way I want you to get real real with me what was the feedback like from your personal neighbors? Like when you started growing a a crop, like a grain, like barley from, for people, like, were they like, Oh my gosh, what is this lady up to? Or were they like, Oh wow, that's super awesome.
1: Oh no. Like my hashtag crazy grain lady is entirely because people think I'm insane. (laughs) And it turns out no other person wants to use that hashtag. Can you believe that? (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, most of my neighbors are pretty tolerant of my horticultural experience now, so they aren't too quick to judge, and they also know that I'm very conscientious that if something looks ugly, I'm going to deal with it, because I don't want to cause problems. I don't want horticulture to be the catalyst for my neighbors not liking me. Um, I think in the past, where there have been lawsuits against people who are vegetable gardening in their front yard... Well, they were doing it in a very messy way. They were doing it in a very farm-like way. And this is always a point I want to make to people. You're a home gardener, not a farmer, and there's a big difference. And if you've chosen to live in a residential community with a homeowner association, you should follow the rules. Now, there are ways to abide by those rules and still grow food. It's just not in messy raised beds that look ugly for half the year, you know? so the grain the grain experience was really, um, I was with Joe Lample, actually. We were at a small uh, community college in the mountains of North Carolina. It has an incredible agriculture program. And the professor there, Dr. Chip Hope, handed me a bag of wheat seed and basically challenged me to grow this out and, and see what I thought and didn't give me any instructions, just to, just just sow it in the ground, you know, and and so I did. And it was, I think, the most transformative horticultural experience of my life. And I sometimes now wonder what will come next for me. And I don't know if I'll ever be able to top that first year of discovering grains. And I say discovering with quotes because grains are like over 10,000 years old. So the fact that, you know, in like 2015, breed, Decided to grow grains is actually pretty ridiculous, but they were green all winter, and then they you know they they went into flower and then they turned amber and people all through my neighborhood would come and get like their family pictures taken in front of it because there's just this incredible experience with seeing amber waves of grain <laughs> and then we were like, well, what do we do with it? You know, I don't have a combine. You know, I have a, a lawnmower. And so we hand harvested it. And then we had these school groups come. And my husband made a, a homemade thresher with a drill and, and a paint bucket. And, you know, we winnow it with a box van. And it turns out these authentic experiences are something that people are really Desperate to have. It's something that's so unique. It's almost like an amusement park ride for gardeners. You know, it's so out of the ordinary. And it was a huge aha moment after having harvested that and, you know, getting 25 pounds of ground flour, which honestly is more flour than I've ever used in my life, probably, because I don't make a lot from scratch, I buy things from the grocery store like normal people, right? But now I have this incredible organic zero-kilometer resource for me to be able to play with in the kitchen, and it, 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 it I'm still completely obsessed with it. I will never not be amused by seeing grains sprout out of the ground, and now even if you don't harvest it, realizing what an important resource it can be for birds, for people who buy bird seeds. Why not grow your own bird seed? It's a fantastic opportunity to extend the purpose of your landscape without creating any additional work. And then discovering the, the, the role that greens play in soil improvement. And I don't know anybody that lives in a new neighborhood that doesn't need help with soil. You know, we really set people up to sale with new landscapes by not having regulations for having landscape contractors bring in quality soil after everything has been hard packed.
0: Do do you mean, do you mean it wasn't a good idea that they scraped all the (laughs) topsoil away, Brie, and then never replaced (laughs) it with anything and left you with, and left you with a geological (laughs) phenomenon that existed uh, 175,000 years ago and nothing's supposed to grow (laughs) in it. Do you mean that wasn't
1: exactly right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) So do you, One of the things as you're talking about the grains that is just going through my mind over and over again is uh, recently, this is a funny anecdote as well, that in my gardening school, I had folks do soil testing. And one of the components I wanted them to walk away with was actually a CEC number for cation exchange. But turns out, a lot of the soil reports across the country don't even give one right. anymore and it was a little like huh that's weird and i reached out and the answer i was given was well because people don't know what it is so we stopped doing it that was that a little sad bad. but the other component of it was that i think a lot of people talk about is these soil reports only are valuable if you're growing like soy right like that's very it ever- like they're they're
1: related yeah
0: Completely, completely. Do you think that sometimes like the the world of growing, growing, right? And I'm making a hand motion to symbolize growing has meant like ag, ag talk. And even the the crops that are grown in areas are just the conventional big commodity crops. And like you're saying, like with breweries, which has clearly been a big thing, there's been so many advancements even with like hops and different varieties or barley that if people knew, they could find something that interests them, right? It it could become their new pair of Yeezys right? It's the thing that represents them. It's something that they're interested in. It doesn't have to be this conventional approach of agriculture so much.
1: Well, you know, you're, you're describing exactly what my mission is. I want to blur that line. I want consumers to not have agriculture in this separate box. I don't want it to be something that consumers take for granted, first and foremost, because agriculture is responsible for feeding this enormous global population and they're very uh consumers are are very quick sometimes to judge agricultural commodity crops in a way because they're not educated enough to really make um better decisions or or they like to make things black and white and as I've done more and more research on green, I think my biggest takeaway is how gray everything in this world is and you no longer really can ever say that something is good or bad because there's always going to be some of both in everything. But I think the best thing that I can do as an enthusiast for home gardening is to get people to see the, the role that an agricultural crop can play right alongside that super ordinary hydrangea or green giant arborvitae Or, God forbid, that stupid Bradford pear. You know, like, I want them to understand how all of these things can work collectively to make your landscape a more functional environment. And there is not a plant easier to grow on this world than a cereal crop. So if you want to not feel like a failure, invest a few dollars into a grain and just sow it in some soil and walk away. You know, I mean... If, if people, if everyone starts with tomatoes, everyone is going to have a complex about how to grow, how to grow vegetables. It's the hardest doggone planet, not it? You know?
0: It's one of, and no, and no offense to our mutual friend, Joe, but I do always find it a little comical. Like we're always starting with tomatoes <laughs> and I get it. There's, there's the iconic tomato and everybody's like the tomato and there's the slice and they're money shots of tomatoes. But from just a pure grower hort perspective, they got some problems oh sometimes. God. They're a little problematic. They're
1: the, They're the hardest plant ever. You know, I mean, I've been growing tomatoes my entire life, and I still sometimes feel like I need to go to a therapist, you know, to deal with the level of failure that I experienced from growing that crop. <laughs>
0: Have you worked with restaurants at all? I've been curious if that's something because recently, um, I think it's not really recent, uh, as far back as the the 90s when Thomas Keller at French Laundry, they started the dedicated um, farm production for that restaurant. And Have you seen any interest on the part of the chef and culinary world, in particular with what you're doing, because it would blend, it feels so beautifully, it both Aesthetically, but also functionally. Well, that has
1: them. certainly been my goal, and I will say I had some really lofty goals when I set out. That I, what I really wanted to do is connect this concept of foodscaping, and, which you know, simply the integration of vegetables, but ultimately it's a land management strategy. Um, and I wanted to connect that to professional landscape contractors to let them be the middleman between this. Land that we have in developed areas that's totally underutilized and the needs that communities have through restaurants or school systems or, uh, you know, farmers markets or whatever, a CSA, whatever. But tying residential landscapes and commercial properties, too, that afford a lot of full footage, it's been a lot harder to do simply with regard to um, some of the the controls that, that are put in place for agricultural crops for testing, like, for E. coli. And landscape contractors have been really hesitant to take on the liability of a potential, you know, problem that would come from them being as a part of that chain. And so, you know, I've set my sights differently where I really would like to see residential and commercial landscapes used as a resource. And I think it there will be a time in our society, whether it's during our lives or not, that I don't believe that we will have the luxury of only having, you know, vast amounts of turf and fairly unpurposeful ornamentals filling all of this space because it is a luxury. It truly is a luxury to have the landscapes that we have. I don't think that's realistic well, that's, for the long
0: term. And that's one of the real differences. You know, one of my my uh, my pet peeves is I love in Europe everything is still called a garden, yes. and there's so much and the space disparity between there versus here. You know, the country itself physically in America being so immense and then so climatically diverse. Versus there, there's sort of still this whimsy to it. There's a preciousness to it. The allotment system in the UK is still popular. There's that component for people. Do you look at this and, and now you know give you a bit of an opportunity to, to retrospect, not in a, a depressing way, but hopefully in a positive way, Brie? That I, I've gone through my own ebb and flow with it. I have moments where I'm like, oh man, it's the worst of times." Right? It's the tale of two cities, <laughs> and. Where do you see it? Do you do you think, I mean, I, I guess I would sort of say, I actually said this on the, the pre-recording that we did uh, with Scott, I almost feel like we're in a transitional time of it. You know, that we're at this like middle ground of where it could be good or it could sort of drift a little bit. How do you see it?
1: I, I think I'm with you there. You know, I want to stay optimistic, but not to a not, not to a point of, of like ignoring reality. Um, I have a lot of faith that the, the the next thirty years we're going to see a different ethic rise. Um, simply because you know these are generations that grew up with environmental science as part of elementary school, and they see the environmental impact that every facet of our existing economy, you know, has put on it. And they're looking to see, like, well, wow, are we even going to have fresh water by the time I get to age 50? You know, like, I think that this coming up behind us is a generation that hasn't been trained to automatically not appreciate these natural resources. I almost think they feel a responsibility to fix all the bad stuff that prior generations have done. And so that makes me feel filled with hope. Like I, I had the great encounter with a number of, of high school and college students this week while I was at the Massachusetts Nursery Landscape Association. And everything about how they approach coming into this industry is different than how I viewed it when I entered 20 years ago. You know, they're absolutely looking for resilient plants, for urban landscapes that are going to be able to tolerate whatever happens in our climate. They're, they're looking at how can we localize food production because food miles are a serious problem. And it's not only an environmental problem, but it's going to become an economic problem where food shouldn't be a luxury. Food should be something that everyone has access to. But we're already living in times where every community I visit, has a food desert and there is food insecurity everywhere I look. And you know, how can we in the horticulture industry institute positive change with regard to things that are really essential? Because I can tell you ornamental horticulture is not recession proof. I lived it. And food people didn't stop eating. You know, that's the thing. That's that's a point that I think the industry has to face every now and again. People can live without hydrangeas and knock out roses, but people still didn't stop eating, even when times were tough. So how can we put ourselves in a position where people can't live without our products, services, and knowledge? And I think food and environment is a really important tie.
0: Well, and I would use my own self as a bit of an example that my gateway to plants was through food and cooking. That was the gateway drug for me. And what I feel is exciting about that is if we bring it to people in the right way, you know, that it's the the magic part of it, the not the low maintenance part. We still got to find that person, Bray. I mean, when I are know. we going to find this I'm person who said the low maintenance thing? You know
1: thing? who we need to first ask is, is Dr. Durr. I'm going to ask him on Saturday. Who invented uh, no, this term, I mean, low maintenance?
0: I I have this impression in my mind, because I do this a lot with many different subjects, where I go, you know, it did happen that way. At some point, there was a first. There was the epicenter. There was the person who at some point this happened to. You know, it's like lobster, right? You always go, who's the person who ate this first? Who's like, yeah, that weird crustacean-y looking bug that I found on the beach? I'm so desperate. I have to eat that. <laughs> like somebody did it clearly. And it's the same thing with this subject. But for me, I, I came through it with a gateway. I, I was very fortunate. Um, I found Baker Creek heirloom seeds really early on and searched some of what they were doing. And my first experiences with it were not in this commodity sort of big boxy kind of way with edibles it was more like what you're saying I was willing to experiment I was doing interesting things and I had this epiphany kind of moment where I was like wow where's all this been I didn't see yeah. these things I didn't you know it's like a paw, paw fruit is a great example you know to speak regionally for me you know that's now a fruit that high-end chefs in new york are paying 20 30 a pound for it when it's in season when people go forage it and that's the the catalyst for me was wow first this just tastes better a b it's really cool who knew these things were happening i remember i grew cardoons for the first time and i was like this is awesome. Look at this plant. It looks like a dinosaur plant. This is awesome. And I can cook it and do things with it. That do you hope maybe that is, and and clearly, you know, maybe I'm just a unicorn and that's cool too. I can accept that. But do you think that, you know, selling it with that, the upsell, Brie, instead of don't worry, it won't die. It's easy to take care of. (laughs) You won't have to do anything. Is that part of what should keep us both optimistic yes, about it?
1: Because I think I, you know the accessibility of knowledge of information now is so different. No one values anything that is free and easy, right? Like you you when you pay for something, you value it. when When it seems intriguing and difficult. It there there you you have a greater attention span for it, um, and like like when you were saying that about cation exchange, the fact that they think people are so incapable of just googling what is cation exchange is really offensive, and we should not tolerate that kind of uh, decision that oh people are just incapable of understanding it because everyone has a cell phone at the tip of their finger. So it's not hard to find out more. And maybe 30 years ago, it was. It was much, much harder to get this information, but it's not now. And I think that's why we should remain optimistic in that people want the intrigue. Uh, You know, I'm so grateful that Baker Creek exists. They were my first, they were how I got interested in vegetables. They were what I consider the plantalites of vegetables. Look at
0: that. Look at that. Look at that. I'm going to interrupt you. Look at that. Both of us. Both Uh, of us. Baker Creek is the greatest thing that's
1: ever happened to the world, as far as I'm concerned.
0: (laughs) And that's what's so important about these type narratives, folks. If if you don't know Baker Baker Creek, Heirloom Seeds, uh, based in Missouri, the the thing that was so fascinating to me, and clearly look at this. Bree and I have the same experience and wouldn't even know about it, serendipitous. That I was like, wait a second. Wait a second. There's a zucchini that looks like a snake.
1: What? I have to grow that. There's
0: a there's a this, there's a that. What? Why 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 nobody tell me about this? I had that kind of moment, and it sounds like you did, too. That's incredible. Oh my
1: God. Well, that's how I, I mean, other than Chip handing me that bag of wheat seed, as soon as it germinated, you know, the first place I went was Baker Creek, and I bought every grain seed they offered. No one else offered grain seed. It was only them. Uh, you know, I mean, well, that was how I got into tomatoes, too, because, I mean, if you really want to lose your mind and get a uh, get a complex, Just start buying a couple hundred varieties of tomato seed from Baker Creek.
0: (laughs) Which is really one of the profound things, hopefully, in our conversation that people walk away with. That, and I do this on Instagram all the time, Bray. I'm constantly apologizing. I've now anointed myself the official spokesperson for the horticulture industry at large. And I'm constantly apologizing and I'm okay with it. And even myself, you know, the, the time period timeline, I was running the nursery between 2009 and 2014, I was running the nursery. I wasn't doing a good job either. I should have duality. I should have been active on social media. I should have been sharing things and talking, but instead I was running a business. You know, it's those kind of things. They occasionally get in the way, but it's bad priorities on my part that we didn't do a good job. We, we weren't telling a lot of the stories that we should be and you know it was these rare exceptions to the rule people like ourselves places like baker creek exist you know places like you know tony with plant delights you know these these are really important but if we're not telling the story they don't exist you know if an awesome plant grows in the woods and there's nobody there does anybody hear it i don't know brie it's some kind of weird expression (laughs) like that, right exactly so I feel like that's sort of the stage that hopefully we're at, that we all want this same thing. We want to bring people to plants and gardening. And let me wrap up here with you on a question because I wanted to get your perspective. And if you don't pay much attention to it, cool. Have you seen what is going on at all with like the small scale cut flower thing? Have you paid attention to that niche at all? Yes.
1: I love it. I mean, my favorite Instagram accounts usually are cut flower growers. Very inspirational. Yeah.
0: <laughs> do you do you think? And one of the things there that does sort of—I hope people can transition a little bit to—is that that gardening world. You know, like you're saying with like foodscapes, it's or grains or any of these things. It's all the same thing, people. Dirty secret. Dirty secret. It's all the same fundamentals. You don't have to pay me anything for this piece of advice. Most of the fundamentals of growing this are the same as that. Do you think we can bridge all of these movements that maybe we've seen over the last few years, like, all together and get it under this umbrella of, like, garden?
1: God, we need to. That needs to be, like, a, a giant, I don't know, fair, bizarre, you know, with thousands of people to... There's no reason that we need to have all of these divides, because at the end of the day, it's all going to the same consumer. And the more that we all collectively work together to provide quality information for that end consumer, the stronger our messages are. And, you know, like, I look to, like, what Baker Creek does with uh, the giant event that they have uh, in California every, I think, every September. Which brings food enthusiasts and, and vegetable gardening enthusiasts together from all over the world. And that's a really powerful forum for people to, first of all, feel a sense of community and, you know, to learn from one another and, and just to like continue to stretch their creativity and, and to not lose steam. You know, I mean, that's the thing. It's easy to get into a rut. And I, I worry sometimes that the, digital platforms, you, 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 start to, you do start to feel exhausted by it and how do you constantly put out something that's fresh and new and um, that time that we get to spend in real life together is still very, very meaningful and very powerful and I don't want that to disappear uh, but I think there's a huge opportunity for cut flower growers and vegetable growers and wholesale nursery growers and perennial people and native enthusiasts to all come together because at the end of the day, our messages are very much in alignment. We'd make the world a better place if we could all work more cooperatively.
2: ties Of these old abandoned rails Wondering about the stories they could tell I think of all the weight I carry on my own And I try to empathize with all they bear There's something about the sun that brings me back to life it's just like staring in your eyes, and I can't tell you what it is I'm doing here. All I know is nothing's felt so right. So let. Never wanna leave this state of mind, but this night—not not for me to decide. Putting down this brand new high mall. But they're just whispers way up here. They got no rhyme for the reason why it's wrong. But there's still this burning in my ears. Some folks say I probably shouldn't This was my life And that's not Not for me to decide